Good to have you here today. We're in our third week of a series on the Bible, and we're calling it Eat This Book, inspired by John's book of Revelation, right in the middle of which he has this encounter with an angel holding a tiny little scroll, preaching from it in such power that the thunders of heaven exploded in agreement. John's trying to write it down, and the voice says to him, just stop trying. Instead, go and ask for the scroll. So he goes up to this giant angel, asks for the scroll, the angel handing it to John and saying, eat the scroll. It's going to be sweet on the way down going to be sour to your stomach. God's Word isn't something we just study, not just a roadmap, it's not an encyclopedia, it's not something to be critiqued, and, and it's value determined by our own individual experience of it. It is meant to nourish us. It is food for our soul. We're meant to take it in and metabolize it into lives of love, words of, of worship for the glory of God. It's amazing how much food plays in our lives, isn't it? I'm trying to talk myself into getting back on a diet, and I keep putting it off a little farther and farther. My, my new goal is to start after the Super Bowl. And if we win, that'll be easy. If we lose, I don't know. Our lives are driven and focused around food. We're either digesting, eliminating, or consuming. It's a constant 24-hour-a-day cycle. We couldn't do without it. That is the image that John is given in this vision about the Word of God. It's not always pleasant. Sometimes it's sweet. We love that part of the experience. Sometimes it's sour. Sweet and sour works in a Chinese food buffet, but it also works in Scripture. We need both, both the answers and the questions. We need both the filling and the blessing and the conviction and the transforming work. As food is to our bodies, the Bible is to be to our hearts, our lives, our spiritual journey. There's something else that we didn't talk about uh, when we first brought up that metaphor two weeks ago, and that is uh, the source of that book that John got. Who had it first? The angel did. Its source is God himself. It's one of the more controversial, for many skeptics, one of the least believable teachings of Christians about the Bible, and that's that it was written by God. And that's what we're going to focus on today. We're going to be in 2 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to pay careful attention to the original language. Uh, When you're talking about doctrine, Those things that are core to what we believe as Christians, you really have to get at the original language. Let's read the passage, 2 Timothy 3. I'm actually going to begin reading at verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of because you know those from whom you learned it and how from infancy you have known the holy scriptures which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. There's three questions that this passage is going to serve as our launch point to answer. The first is, was the Bible written by God? What's the source of the Bible? Was it God's words or, or human words? 
Second is, what's the benefit of the Bible? What good is it in my life? And then third, what's the goal of being people of the book? What's the end result it's supposed to have in our life? So we're going to be able to look at all three of those things out of this passage. Remember last week, we talked about the modern view of the Bible, and we talked about why we can trust it historically and culturally and personally. And I'm not going to review that, but it is online. I encourage you to go back and, as you're able to, listen to both of the previous sermons in the series because they do lay some important foundations, in particular last week's. So let's first look at this. Was the Bible written by God? I'm going to break up this first section. All Scripture is God-breathed. I'm going to break up into two sections. The first section is all Scripture. The word all is a very little word. The Greek word is pas. There are several words in the Greek language for all. Most of them mean in total. But the word pas is more pervasive. What it means is both the entirety of it, but every piece of it. How many of you have heard this phrase, we believe in the verbal plenary inspiration of the Bible? Anybody heard that? Okay, both of you. That's a classic term you will hear thrown around in theological conversations about the Bible. This passage is where we get those words from. So when we use the word pas, it means the entirety of it, and that's what the word plenary means. And it also means every word, and that's where we get the term verbal. So when we talk about the Scripture being God-breathed, whatever that means, whatever Paul is getting at here, it permeates the whole. Therefore, we use the phrase, it's verbal, it's word for word, God's, but it's also plenary. The whole thing has a certain power and purpose to it that is given to us by God. Jesus, in Matthew 5, declares that not one jot or tittle of the Old Testament scriptures will pass away before everything that God purposes to do is completed. Jot and tittle. Jot is the Hebrew letter yod. It's the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Tittle isn't even a letter. It's smaller than that. It's like a seraph. It's like the little slash at the bottom of the capital Q. Jesus is saying everything, when he's referring at least to the Old Testament scripture, everything in it, even the smallest letter and the most minute punctuation mark, matters. So that's the first thing I want you to understand. It's not just the broad ideas in the Bible uh, we're saying are inspired, or the grand themes of it, or some of the stories, or the lives in it that are inspiring to us. It itself, right down to the details is whatever God-breathed means. The second word I want you to see is the word Scripture. Scripture is the biblical term for God's sacred and authoritative writings. So when the writers in both the New Testament and the Old speak of the Scripture, especially the New Testament, because they're referring, first of all, to the whole of the Old Testament, which we'll talk about in just a few minutes. When they talk about Scripture, they're not just saying the writings that we have about Jesus. They're saying the authoritative writings that we have about Jesus, the ones that when we read them, we can trust they are telling us the right things about God, the right things about Jesus, how it's supposed to impact our life. They are the authoritative texts. A lot of people write a lot of things. 
So the first thing that might come to your mind, and I promised I would talk about this a little bit, although I'm not going to do an exhaustive apologetic about the canon, which means how we came up with these particular books in the Bible, I would be happy to refer you to some excellent books and to some online resources if you really want to look in detail at the things I'm going to share with you. But I want to cover a little bit this question. If all of Scripture is supposed to be authoritative to me, how do I know I've got it? How do I know this is it? How do I know there isn't some missing or there's stuff in here that doesn't belong in here? What is the Scripture? How did we decide what's in the Bible? The first area to talk about is the Old Testament because it's kind of the easy one as Christians because it was the Scripture of Jesus. It's interesting to look at Jesus' life and to recognize that everything that happens to him, he's quoting Scripture. He's quoting it about himself. Remember, we talked last week about the disciples on the road to Emmaus walking with Jesus and how badly they understood even their own scriptures. And so Jesus, beginning with Moses, it's the very first books of the Hebrew scripture, opens the scripture up to them and teaches them everything about himself. Not only did Jesus affirm the Old Testament scriptures as the authoritative words of God, he said they were his preography Everything in them was a precursor to his coming. Therefore, they are all his story. So when we look at the Old Testament, we say, yes, they were the scriptures of Jesus. He used them. He taught them. In fact, Jesus referred to the Old Testament as spoken by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus saw the Old Testament scriptures as God's authoritative word, not just written by men, but inspired by and therefore given by God. But what about the New Testament? How did we come up with the 27 books? You know, there's a lot of writings out there. A lot of people hear all these ideas about the other Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, you know, the Gnostic Gospels. And they hear this notion that the only thing that's in the Bible is what the winners put in there. There was this political battle. And the winners got to decide what was in the Bible, and they buried the rest. And the rest would help us get the full picture of Jesus. Now, that comes from, let me, let me help you understand the difference between what I'm going to describe for you right now and that perspective. The secular perspective on Christianity sees it primarily historically. Those ideas that presume the absence of supernatural look at the Bible and begin to dismiss it immediately and look for other answers to it. So there's a natural bias. But secondly, as historians, to them, anything written about Jesus has equal bearing. So whether it's what the Gnostics wrote or what the Judaizers wrote or what the apostles wrote, they say all of it has value. We can learn something about the historic Jesus, which means not the Jesus that we think is the historic Jesus, in actuality. Yes, there have been many people who have written about Jesus over many centuries. What boils down, it's actually very simple, what boils down to determining what is, remember the word authoritative. What is authoritative is the word apostolicity. Say that with me. Apostolicity. What word is the root of that? The apostles. You see, what books ended up in the New Testament is all about their connection to the apostles because they were the ones that Jesus personally commissioned and passed on the task of launching his church. 
It's really important that you understand that. Look with me at Ephesians 2, 19 and 20. In fact, let's say this together. You are members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. So the church, the foundation that that gives us what we are to believe is first of all from the Old Testament scriptures, that's the prophets, and then from the apostles who are the authoritative source for what is true about Jesus in the new covenant. And at the center of both, the cornerstone of the whole thing is the person of Jesus Christ. The Old Testament is his preography. The gospels are his biography. And the epistles and acts and everything that's forward is his continuing work of building his church and the preparation for the recreation of all things under him. See, very early on, and the book of Acts tells you, the church faced those who tried to assimilate Jesus into pre-existing ideas. The Romans did that, acknowledged Jesus as a deity. They were just enfolding him into their plethora of, of deities. Okay, the two dominant pre-existing ideas were, first of all, the Gnostics, one of the first great heresies that the apostles write against. Much of the apostle John's writings, the whole opening passage of 1 John, his first epistle, not his gospel, directly deals with the heresies of the Gnostics, mystics, Eastern thinkers who had been influenced by an idea of a oneness, not a personal deity, and enfolded Jesus into their thinking But their ideas pre-existed. They fit Jesus in and therefore altered the ideas of Jesus. There's a lot of writing out there by the Gnostics. That's one source. The other group were the Judaizers. Now, the Judaizers believed that Jesus was the Messiah of the Jewish people. So, boy, that's pretty close, isn't it? (laughs) But not close enough. What they misunderstood was grace, that Jesus came to fulfill the law The law was given to help us understand our need for grace, that none of us could be made righteous by the law, that all it did was help us become aware of our spiritual inadequacy and our moral failures to pave the way for Christ to come who fulfilled the law. Judaizers didn't get that. They loved their traditions. They loved holding themselves up as righteous by the law. And so there is writing in the first, second, third century that comes from the Judaizers. How do we steer through those to what the real Christ was? It's all about the apostles. The apostles were the ones that Jesus commissioned, that he called out, and then he said, go. And he said, I'm giving you the keys to the kingdom. What you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And so the books that make up our New Testament scripture are books that were written by the apostles or in association with them. It's really that simple. When the apostles were no longer here, there was no one left who spoke and had the right to claim, I speak uniquely for God. Therefore, we have the books that we have. Let me just talk a minute about uh, the Gnostic Gospels. One of the famous ones you hear all the time is the, the Gospel of Thomas. How many have heard about that? All right. The, the, the notion is that this might have been written by the disciple Thomas, 
But everything about that writing points to its, its being written towards the end of the second century and the beginning of the third century. It actually quotes passages from a certain um, conglomerative writing of the Gospels that didn't exist till towards the end of the second century. Therefore, we know that that was written well after any of the apostles were alive, was certainly not written by Thomas. It, it's not hard to see these things, but when you approach the Bible, not from an earnest seeker trying to get to the real source of the true story, but as a curious historian trying to explore all the possibilities, you just treat it all as equal. And then you pass that on to everybody else from 2,000 years distance and from a 10,000-foot perspective, and we get lost in it. But it's just not that hard. We can trust that what we have is the entirety of the Old Testament that Jesus affirmed and the writings that the apostles either penned themselves or confirmed those who were writing. Now, I can spend more time on that if you're interested, uh, have a conversation with you, but I, I, I obviously need to move on. I'm already thinking I'm going to be doing the back part of this sermon next week. But I feel like it's important that we cover some of these things. Yeah, it's not exactly preaching as we think of it, but you're not going to hear it from Time Magazine and the Jesus Project and Harvard Divinity School. You're just not going to hear how simple it actually is. All those sources presume that there couldn't have been a man who was God. There couldn't have been miracles. God can't speak uniquely. See, all Scripture... What about all Scripture? Well, let's move on. It is God-breathed. The, the Greek word is theopneustros. It's two words, theo, which is God, and the neustros is breathed or blown. In the King James, and the words we've used, inspiration, we actually have it exactly the opposite because inspiration comes from the Latin to breathe in. And that's not at all what this is. We should actually say we believe in the outspiration of Scripture. It actually comes from him. That's the idea. It really means that God literally spoke. All of Scripture, from the minutia to the grand totality of it, literally comes from God as though he were speaking it to us. He's the source of it. All Scripture is outspired by God. The analogy is similar to the story of creation, where God gathers from the elements of the earth and from the clay and forms man and then breathes into him the breath of life and man becomes a living being. In the same way, we carry an essence of God in our life that he imparted to us in creating us. So the word carries with that the very life of God. Now, we have to be careful because segments of Christianity almost treat the Bible as though it was divine itself. I attended um, the Roman church Christmas event with uh, my in-laws who are very devout, godly people. I, I believe they know the Lord with all their heart and put their faith and trust in him. But it was interesting to see in that setting how the word of God, when they came to the gospel, is revered and bowed to and kissed as though the word were God himself. This is not a fourth person of the Trinity but what we can believe is that these words have power from God 
They are life-giving. They carry the life that he intends for us from him. Therefore, eat it. (laughs) See the point? Eat the book. Let it change you. There's a parallel passage in 2 Peter 1, verse 21. Peter writes, Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. This brings up a pretty important question. If the Bible purports that it is written by God, is it also written by man? If it's written by man, how is it not riddled with our humanity and therefore full of errors? Huge questions here. Men were carried along like wind carries a ship, and they wrote as God moved them. I was looking for a picture of uh, auto writing. I actually found one, but I didn't have time to get it in the PowerPoint this morning. It was too last minute. That paranormal thing where uh, somebody goes into a trance and begins writing, and supposedly it's some spirit speaking through them. That is not what Peter's describing here. Okay? Look at how the writers are writing. Look at Luke, who writes his gospel. He says, I've carefully researched it. I've talked to all the witnesses, and now I'm going to report to you exactly what I learned about Jesus so you can be confident of the truth. That's not Luke writing automatically. That's Luke writing as Luke. The writers of both the Old and New Testament knew that they were writing. They were writing in their time, in their language. They were writing at the level of education that they had. They were writing through their understanding of the universe and the world around them. And all of that is seen in the Bible. So if you ask the question, was the Bible written by God or by people? The answer is yes. God carried them along. They wrote from their perspective But God guided the writing so that everything that was written was there by his intents and purpose. That's what we mean when we talk about the inspiration of the Bible. And now you know the better term to describe it. The Bible is God breathed. God gave it to us through men moved by him. Let's just take a minute and touch on it. I will talk about this in the weeks ahead a little bit too. All right, so I'm willing to believe that everything in the Bible is given there by God. In other words, there's nothing there that God didn't mean to have there. But if men wrote it, could there be mistakes in the Bible? And how important are those things? Let me just touch on it a little bit. There are errors in our understanding of the Bible, absolutely. There are errors in our interpreting the Bible. So often we perceive errors because of our understanding of it, because of how we make it. There are various types of literature in the Bible. There is narrative, including, but not exclusively, history. But not all narrative is history. There is wisdom literature, poetry. There's prophetic literature. There are letters, and then there's visionary literature. So when you ask the question, are there errors in the Bible, you have to ask yourself, how am I coming at each of these passages? And am I presuming something about them that makes me perceive an error that really is not the intent of the writing? Let me, let me give you an example. How Moses wrote about creation and use terminology about creation that are not 
accurate scientifically? Is that an error? Is that an error? Or is God using Moses to describe his purpose and his intent and the way that things were created, but allowing Moses to express it in the best way he could? See? Two of the gospel writers look at Jesus' robe and see a different color. One sees scarlet, the other sees purple. Is that an error in the Bible? Or is God using men to write as they recalled the story? And can we glean the image through their recollection and trust that the Holy Spirit guided that? And the whole story is there somehow. It's interesting. I was thinking about that today. And Ella went to a, a school down in Menden. And I would go and pick her up before she got her license. And every day we went by this, this house. And one day we had a very strong debate as to what color it was. And I was sure it was cranberry. She was sure it was purple. And so almost every afternoon when we were driving by, as we were passing it, I'd say, cranberry. She'd say, purple. (laughs) To this day, I think it was cranberry. But my point is it was what it was. And my guess is when I describe it as purple or cranberry, you can kind of picture what the color was, can't you? You see what we do? We make these things so important in the name of saying it's from God that we're willing to lose the whole argument over the real possibility that God allowed humanness to be part of how he wrote his perfect word to us. And we get caught up in debating about things, and we don't need to. We just don't need to. And if we free ourselves up from that, it allows us to look at some things in a fresh way. Let me say a few other things about errors. There are errors in the Bible. There are people that say things that are wrong. But we're supposed to know that they say it, that it's wrong. (laughs) They say it in a context where they clearly, in the end, are proven to be wrong. Job's uh, counselors are a good example of that. You you come into the middle of Job, and you read what one of his counselors say. You might think that that's what the Bible's teaching about crisis. But when you read the whole story, you realize, in the end, what they say is wrong. You see my point? So, are there errors in the Bible? Yeah. Did God intend them Yes. Godly men were carried by God. They wrote through their experience, through their language, through their recollection, and God moved at the same time. You can see the divine hand of God showing up in the midst of the humanness to trust that everything in there is given by God. We can trust that. We can submit to it. We can learn what he has for us. So what's the first response to this? How can I take a step to confirm this and experience it? Here's my challenge to you. Eat it. (laughs) Read it. Experience the breath of God and let it change you. And we'll pick it up next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word alive and active, sharper than even a two-edged sword, able to do deep spiritual surgery, dividing even soul and spirit. We want that experience with it. Forgive us for setting back, doubting it, suspecting it, putting it on a shelf, revering it without consuming it. Father, help us in these days to have that relationship with your word that is not just informative, but is transformative. In Jesus' name, amen.